So I see you expect something besides your own thoughts. My, my. So I thought I would start with a little uh, transcendent piece here called Walking on Water. Three monks decide to practice meditation together. They sat by the side of a lake and closed their eyes in concentration. Then suddenly the first one stood up and said, I forgot my hat. He stepped miraculously onto the water in front of him and walked across the lake to their hut on the other side. When he returned, the second monk stood up and said, I forgot to put my other underwear out to dry. He walked calmly across the water and returned the same way. The third monk watched the first two carefully in what he decided must be a test of his own abilities. Is your learning so superior to mine? I too can match any feat you you too can perform. He declared loudly and rushed to the water's edge to walk across to promptly fall into the deep water. Undeterred, He climbs out, tried again, only to sink into the water again. Yet again he climbed out, and yet again he tried, each time sinking into the water. This went on for some time as the two monks watched. After a while, the second monk turned to the first one and said, Do you think we should show him where the stones are? So, that's what we do, you know. So, um, tonight, uh, I'd like to just, uh, this is really a continue on this uh, process of exploring the Satipatthana and um, just a little bit of review here, uh, because tonight, uh, Mary Grace uh, expounded on the nature of the breath and it's rising, and it's quite a bit about it's passing away, you know. So, and the four reflections of uh, the wonders of, uh, of uh, the ability to breathe, to be uh, embodied, to be here, uh, to uh, recognize that all that we are uh, arises and is here for a while and disappears, and that we are, uh, what, the inheritor of our actions, and that uh, this cyclic existence uh, is actually a nature of reflection of how things arise and pass away. So tonight I want to just continue, and again this is really um, the first of the foundations is uh, about uh, the breath and the body. And I liked in the slideshow, uh, Gil had the uh, uh, body in big letters uh, at the bottom uh, as the foundation uh, of these practices. And that's really what I'd like to explore with you this evening is uh, this, uh, really the foundation uh, of, um, what? Uh, of the practice of grounding in some way. So... Um, before I, and so there's that truth of the um, 
breath and body. And then there's uh, this word vedna, it's the uh, feeling. Uh, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral that Heather will speak about tomorrow night. And then um, Gil will talk about the, you know, the thoughts, the mind, and emotions. And then uh, really the last evening then will be on the processes, the Dharma itself, and the sense of how the Buddha um, held or categorized it in some way. So that's kind of the, the direction we're moving in. So tonight, first of all, I have to start here with um, uh, uh, confusion. You know, uh, one of the things was in the in the I, actually I was Heather and I were trying to figure out this thing of my um, what is it a bio change? You know, and uh, one of the things that I totally refuted was that I had been doing this almost fifty years, forty-seven and a half years. And I said, oh, no, that, no I, you can't put 50 there, you know. And it was so daunting, the fact, oh, my gosh, you know, I should be levitated and all sorts of uh, things going on, you know. And, uh, uh, and so uh, the other side of that is that uh, it is this journey, and the journey doesn't stop. Uh, it's not a thing in time, you know. Uh, it's really this uh, process that we go through. And back in the 60s, when I first recognized that somehow uh, the proverbial, I'm a proverbial adventurer, seeker, uh, I get myself in a lot of trouble uh, with that kind of seeking that I do. But I'm not going to stop. And, uh, but one of my uh, confusions was about the idea of the vertical and the horizontal. And the vertical is really where I started with this whole thing, was the fact that somehow I could actually transcend. And uh, I remember I had this idea that somehow there was, uh, you know, a higher power or or God or a force that uh, I could uh, surrender to and and rely on in some way. And uh, I could, you know, I came to Buddhism, got a little disappointed in that, but that's okay. Uh, the truth was, it was uh, something that, you know, uh, first of all, was uh, in our cultural conditioning, was that we were actually a culture. And there are many, this is not one, but many, in some ways, cultural conditioning uh, to transcend. You know, uh, my friend John Wellwood uh, called it a spiritual uh, bypass, you know. And that, uh, I remember in the 60s, that was one of the things that was really important to me, was that somehow that I could get out of this, you know, beyond this on some level. And that uh, that took a lot of, uh, you know, it took a lot of effort in its own way too. So, story, and then I'll read my poem. Uh, I grew up in Europe, in Switzerland, and, and um, you know, in the 60s, and about 66, I went to Paris and I read a book called Concentration, and it was all this uh, more kind of in a Hindu vein of, uh, of going into states. And so I began to uh, look for states, you know, 
Of course, in the 60s, uh, I think uh, there was a little bit of confusion there that we could uh, use substances to transcend um, completely. And uh, I think, you know, was it? I've forgotten it. Uh, get so high that I'd never come down uh, was kind of the ideal there, you know. So the story is I uh, was on this, in this transcendent model and I came to California uh, in 1966, and, and I had been told in Paris about the wonders of California and the Haight-Ashbury, and that it was happening, right? So I got on Translove Airways, flew to San Francisco, and uh, immediately, uh, wow, I lost it, you know? And so there was this big bean, and one of the things was that um, the uh, I had listened to this album in in uh, Paris, uh, uh, of um, uh, Grace Slick and the, what was it? No, it was the Jefferson Airplane. That was it, you know. And I went, oh, now this is it, you know. So I went to the park, and Jefferson Airplane was there, and, and the Grateful Dead were there. And, and so I went up and, you know, being kind of a precocious, uh, questioning guy, came up, and, and Pigpen of the uh, Grateful Dead handed me some pills, and I took them and said, all right, you know. Uh, but there was a little uh, uh, confusion here in the sense that as the day went on uh, and I got more cross-eyed and more transcendent, you know, um, that uh, I had to, the day was sort of over and the sun was down and everybody was leaving and uh, everything was cleared out. And, and um, at that point, this woman said, well, uh, you want to ride back to the hate? I said, oh, sure. You know, I said, well, there's no room in the car, but you can get in the trunk. So <laughs> I got in the trunk, you know, kindly and uh, uh, trusting. And she shut the trunk and they drove back to hate. But then she was stoned and she forgot about me and I was still in the trunk, you know. So I sat in the, this trunk, and, and I, I, I really learned a lot in the next uh, hours, you know, about, you know, I didn't really want to be in the trunk. You know how that works, you know? And so I, I realized that with this uh, psychedelic, I, could, I would just go out, you know, and, I, and it was really fine. But then every time I came back, I would I sort of panic and go, I don't want to be here. You know, this is not the place I want to be, you know? And uh, so I really had that transcendent model of like, okay, you know, um, can I get out of this, you know? And uh, that was really the kind of the story, can I get out of it, you know? And it was still this vertical model, and I'd learned, you know, and whether it was at the Catholic Church or whatever, that somehow, you know, uh, if I could trust that there was, um, you know, and I I don't say there isn't, it's just that uh, the model was that vertical model of getting out. You know. So, night goes on, and I'm in the trunk, you know, and uh, I realize I really want to, you know, stay out. I don't want to be here, you know, and I'm saying that in a general term. I don't want to be here, you know. And one of the things with that time, um, kind of a sad part of the story, is uh, my mother was killed in, the, in this 19. Um, 67, she had died in a car accident, and my best friend that I'd come to see in San Francisco had shot himself, and his friend had shot himself. And so I was in this 
uh, conundrum of, uh, you know, not only disassociation, but in the sense of kind of survival, survivor's guilt of, uh, I wanted to get out, you know. And at this point, it was easier, uh, in a sense, to uh, determine that out was better than here, you know. And a lot of the kind of spiritual... Uh, uh, later in practices, you know, I, I spent a when after that I uh, did survive that, and in the middle of the night, uh, I this somebody came by and I I banged on the on the trunk of the car and and this one came on and said what's what's going on in there or some guy I don't even remember what I, by then I, I I didn't know in from out or, or anything. And so she opened the trunk, and I got out and, and uh, kind of stumbled around for the rest of the summer in the Haight-Ashbury, um, literally. And then, um, I don't know, I made another year, year and a half in the States, and then I headed for India. And again, the model was uh, this idea of transcendence, you know, that somehow if I could find... Um, a way to get out and beyond, you know. And uh, in the practice itself, because I actually, uh, well, just a little bit of what I was like then, um, you know, I sort of had long hair and beard, and, and um, you know, I wore a skirt in India, and I, I loved going uh, barefoot and, um, you know, uh, basically what they call a sadhu. You know, so I really had this sadhu life for many years, actually. And uh, it was in this interplay between the transcendent uh, and the horizontal. And when I came to this practice, uh, I had met Suzuki Roshi, and I, I knew sort of different modalities. But at that time, uh, I actually didn't trust any modality. You know, what was true for me was I had to somehow find what was true for me, you know. And uh, the transcendent model, and I spent many time with years with different gurus and different uh, modalities, and started then to slowly, as time went on, to recognize the value of the horizontal. That somehow this horizontal model that wasn't transcendent, but was actually about owning this life and being here. And uh, one of the things I remember in, in uh, Kathmandu, and this was probably 69, and I was uh, with this, my teacher at the time, Lama Tupin Yeshi, and, and uh, we were overlooking Kathmandu at the time. And um, at the Ast- king's astrologer's house. And uh, he said, you just have it wrong, you know, that somehow you want to get out of this. And he kind of pointed and he kind of stuck his finger on my chest and kind of pointed, kind of pushed kind of hard and said, you have to go through this, you know. And it, I didn't get it. You have to go through this. And it took me some years then to realize that, oh, this is all, all this practice is fundamental. Uh, it's uh, in its simplest form is that somehow uh, we completely own uh, what it's like to be here. And I'd lear- I really learned dissociative model uh, first. So I'd like to read you my poem, which is 
about body, of course, since that's what I'm doing something with. Bodiness. The wind whistling through the valley. Maybe it could blow the many thoughts, stories, and feelings through the hills, scattering them for miles and miles. Yet today, sitting on this sore bum, knees a little creaky, not sure why I would want to inhabit this ignored body. Difficulty pulling buoyant mind down, down, down into this skittish body, staying only a moment, then off again, prancing around, hoping to think myself out of all these discomforts, yet remembering the sacred and enchanted place, asking only to surrender to a body, steeped in its own natural aliveness, body inhabiting body. Awareness having this home destined to release this worthy heart, making nothing out of all of this, resting in its totality, body in body. So the body is kind of fascinating that um, as a culture, as I say, sometimes I think of it as like this helium balloon that we have to pull down and that so much of this practice is based on bringing, because we've really trained our attention culturally to go up and out and to go into the past and the future and analyze and plan and make up all of that. And here is this, uh, it's very simple. It says, oh, can I ground my attention? You know, Ida, here. Can I ground my attention here? And what is it that I inhabit in the here? I, I like this because this is Kabir. I laugh when I hear that the fish in the water is thirsty. I laugh when I hear that the fish in the water is thirsty. You don't grasp the fact that what is most of life is inside your own house. So you walk from one holy city to the next with a confused look. Kabir will tell you the truth. Go wherever you like to Calcutta or Tibet and if you don't find where your soul is hidden, for you, the world will never be real. You know, I like Kabir. And I think it's important that somehow um, we recognize this is a home. Uh, that uh, we have to learn horizontally to begin to own on some level. Um, I just I thought, oh, a few interesting facts about the body. Various scientists have calculated that in less than one year you replace 
about 98% of all the atoms in your body, making a new liver every six weeks, a new skeleton every three months, a new stomach lining every five days, a new skin once a month. Even the brain cells you think with, as carbon and hydrogen and oxygen, weren't there one year ago. And the actual raw material of the DNA, which holds memories of millions of years of evolutionary time, comes and goes every six weeks. It's pretty amazing, huh? You got one. It's pretty cool, you know? So here are some other facts, that, that, that uh, unusual, odd facts, I guess. One, you use 200 muscles taking just one step. You use 200 muscles just taking one step. Feet can produce a pint of sweat a day. <laughs> this is an interesting. Babies are born with 300 bones. Adults have 206 bones. Now figure that one out. (laughs) Your body gives off enough heat in 30 minutes to boil a half gallon of water. It's not about menopause. This is just regular old body. (laughs) Five, this one. Nerve impulses travel to and from the brain at 170 miles per hour. 170 miles per hour. The brain uses the same amount of power as a 10-watt light bulb. A human brain cell can hold five times as much information as Wikipedia. How's that? A human brain cell can hold five times as much information as a Wikipedia, you know. So this is kind of we're talking about. Uh, there is this miracle that uh, we have been, um, for whatever purposes, the turtle coming up through the uh, ocean and, and uh, appears. And so you have appeared, you know. And there's this miraculous thing going on that um, you actually, in some ways, uh, don't honor or give it uh, its due in some way. You know, that, uh, yes, we can use it to, um, you know, uh, to push past it in so many ways. Part of our whole cultural identity is somehow that this is all about winning and losing. And that uh, we can drive the thing uh, so that uh, it performs the way we want it. And from this practice's point of view, and you can is that this is a whole different operational system. The system is, oh, we came here to be quiet. We came here to listen. And to listen in such a deep level uh, that that mind, uh, training it to kind of, you know, it's kind of like a puppy or a monkey, uh, to stay and uh, feel the breath and then begin to explore this uh, body that's, uh, you know, you do not breathe. Your body breathes you. You know, uh, there's so many, there's hundreds of functions going on, whether it's the liver or the lungs or the heart, uh, that has nothing to do whatsoever uh, with uh, your will or in many ways your 
decisions or whatever, that there is this thing happening. And that this listening uh, has actually millions of years uh, of information. And that this practice is willing to take the mind and begin to, for moments, uh, make that connection and realize that there is actually a great intelligence. You know, there's a kind of a self-organizing principle when uh, the mind and body and ultimately the heart aligns itself with itself, you know, uh, to this capacity to listen and uh, be attentive and, um, excuse me, not to make up too much about everything, you know. We're so good at that. And yet, how much suffering does that cause? You know. This is a a piece from the Dharmapada. Those who continuously make efforts to direct their awareness towards the body, who abstain from unwholesome actions and strive to do what should be done, such people, aware with full understanding, are freed from their defilements. Why not? You know, this, there's this listening and uh, also this wisdom that is inherent uh, in that connection. You know, and it's not something. It's something. It actually is. A, this is very much a training. Because we can go and we can philosophize and we can make up all kinds of things about everything. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. What I'm saying is here is this opportunity to kind of stop in your tracks. uh, Begin to put your attention into uh, what usually is not, you know, what you could say in some ways is subtle uh, and begin to listen and realize that out of that contact where uh, the mind is connected uh, to our physical experience, that there is a natural intelligence uh, that comes from that, uh, actually part of what we know as insight practice. You know. This is from uh, Hakuen Zenji, Song of Zazen. All beings by nature are Buddha, as ice by nature is water. How sad people ignore the near and search for truth afar, like someone in the midst of water crying out for thirst. Truly, is anything missing now? That's the question. Is anything missing now? Nirvana is right here before our eyes. This very place is the pure lotus land. This very body, the Buddha. Lovely. So this horizontal model, you know, uh, it is uh, this using that awareness. uh, In the sense, it's something you know. This awareness, it isn't born. It isn't doesn't die. It's something that's always with you, and um, you can't get rid of it. You know, it's always there. And, and the problem is, you know, Ram Dass used to have this thing about it's better if you left the room once you know you can't stop knowing. Right? Once 
you know you can't stop knowing. So just the fact that you can turn your attention and know that you're knowing and then that you have the capacity uh, to actually encompass, I can say better than direct, encompass uh, more of a fullness. And that fullness is this uh, physical experience. And it's not to get lost in these sense doors. It's such, you know, it's so, could be easy to just say, oh, well, uh, you know, here is this, uh, these body sensations, these sounds, and that each of these, in the sense, are these sense doors. And that these sense doors, um, you know, um, they're enchanting. You know, we can actually get enchanted by them and uh, not see their nature, you know. And it's not such a sobering thing. It's, it's actually, oh, I don't have to get lost in sound. I don't have to get lost in anything, you know. That that awareness that is actually uh, there, uh, that wasn't born, didn't die, uh, is uh, that that uh, becomes more and more a friend, but it is part of uh, the totality of our experience. You know, so uh, all of our information. You know, I think sometimes it's really interesting that we use the language uh, gut, a uh, gut feeling. You know, and that. Uh, it's interesting. I remember when I, I first went to practice and stuff, and this was um, many moons ago. Uh, one of the things that I had, a, a, first of all, I had a stomach like a rock. Now I got a pudge like a pudge, you know? But it was like a rock. And what I realized, what I had been living with since I was a little kid was fear. And that fear was contracted in my stomach. And I walked around with that fear and I totally ignored it and wanted nothing to do with it. And it was part of the ideals of transcendence was, you know, here was this, I was an adventurer. I, you know, sort of hitchhiked through Europe and, you know, made it through Turkey and ended up in jail there for a while and, and uh, you know, on to Iran and Afghanistan and India and then Nepal, you know. Uh, you'd think courageous, but actually underneath all that courageousness was this tremendous amount of fear, you know. And that fear was contracted in my stomach. And I remember I went to, uh, I was living in this Bihar school of yoga in uh, Bihar state, right on the Ganges there. And I was a uh, a sunyasin there uh, with this Satchananda Saraswati. And... and, um, and we used to do all of these different yoga things. And I, I kept realizing that the thing that caught me was this contraction, you know. And I could not work it out, you know. And it took, actually, at the beginning of my first, uh, my first Vipassana retreat was six weeks. And it took a month for me to actually realize that I had the power from uh, my awareness itself to soften and that to soften meant that I had to, you know, what it did was bring up all this um, loneliness. And, and uh, I'd been sent to boarding school when I was six. And so I, I um, had a lot, I actually had a lot of trauma. And that once I started to feel that fear and give myself permission uh, to, uh, in a sense, kind of untangle it, because that's what we do here. We kind of untangle 
And as I began to untangle it, then there, there really became a kind of easing and a relaxing. And realizing that I really didn't like myself and hadn't liked myself for a long, long time. And that um, at that point, then it was like, oh, you know, uh, there was this kind of little kid in there that was kind of waiting to be noticed. And that that little kid, uh, all it needed was acknowledgement, you know. And then uh, the fear began to untangle itself. And I can't say it happened quickly, you know, because it actually took years, you know. And each in our different ways, uh, I think, deal with this. And I think one of the fundamentals is you're all scaredy cats, you know. Uh, you have very good defenses and professionalisms and all that stuff. But underneath it, you know, uh, is that. And that here, in some ways, what is it that I think is the most profound piece here is that by staying connected, you know, there's a sense of uh, ground in this uh, kind of uh, uh, first piece here. That uh, when you ground yourself in that, that there is actually a direct connection uh, to the dissociation uh, and the fear that goes with the dissociation. This is from uh, uh, one of my uh, teachers for a while. His name is Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, one and only. When you sit, actually sit, even your floating thoughts begin to sit on their own bottoms. They're not particular problems. You have a sense of solidness, groundedness, and at that same time, a sense of begin. His language is fabulous. Without this particular foundation of mindfulness, the rest of your meditation practice could be very airy-fairy vacillating back and forth, trying this and trying that, and you could be constantly tiptoeing on the surface of the universe, not actually getting a foothold anywhere. You could become an eternal hitchhiker. In the mindfulness of the body, there is a sense of finding some home ground. I don't think I have so much to say about this because it's really more uh, that uh, this ability to listen or turn your attention around and kind of take that helium balloon of um, constant, you know, between the emotion and the thought, uh, which is kind of a a self-fulfilling loop a lot of times, is that we have to drag the thing down. And so when we say, oh, put your attention in uh, the simple. And that's really what is being said here. Very simple, you know. Oh, where do I feel myself? You know, your butt right now on the cushion or your bench or, you know, chair. That there is this truth that, 
uh, when the mind makes that contact, there's a, a relaxing that's there that happens. You know? And you have to learn to begin to trust that more than you're thinking. That that contact between uh, the mind and the body in the sense of ground uh, is your gift. You know, and it's always been with you, but part of it, it has to be pointed out. And then once it's pointed out, it has to be uh, over and over again uh, training because we trained ourselves the opposite way. Now we have to train ourselves to come back and be here. So, um, in the forest tradition uh, in Thailand, um, what in the, uh, I've forgotten, sometime in the 1800 to 1949, was a Ajahn Moon who was uh, really a mystic in the sense that, uh, you know, he talked to, from tigers to uh, beings, uh, unseen beings, you know, I think sometimes, and you know, sometimes it get maybe a little too horizontal in some ways, uh, that there is, uh, like right now with the Dharma, there, there's how many people in the room? Uh, my teacher Manindra used to say, well, uh, there's only this many people in the room, but actually there are many other beings, uh, tree beings and, and uh, spirits and all sorts of things that love to listen to Dharma. And in this particular place, they've been listening for a while, you know? And, uh, and so I think they come uh, and uh, listen, you know? And the same time that we ourselves, you know, we have that in us. And at the same time, we also have the darkness, And uh, in essence, coming here, there is this uh, uh, mixing uh, of our own darkness and you could say the higher or lighter forces. But they manifest in one place. And the world is uh, what? uh, Because of how things look, and because we label everything with language and we go around labeling everything, thinking somehow that that's what it is, instead of knowing that somehow that's just an approximate of what's happening. There's something more going on here and always has been going on. And our practice ultimately is to, is to loosen our kind of mental construct, uh, which is based on our language and our projections on things, that we have to loosen all that up. And when we begin to loosen that, then uh, this is not the place that it may appear to be. It may be more than it appears to be. And that at the corners of your awareness, uh, there is a lot more going on here uh, than just... uh, what the immediate senses and mind confines itself to. You know. So this is a mystery. You know? 
And uh, I'm not saying kind of to get lost in that, but to, uh, in a sense, uh, see if you can't just hold the corners of that in some way. And it's not to go over too far and, and, you know, we could call that magical thinking. But there's this edge, you know, it really is kind of, in, I see it kind of as the middle way that doesn't buy all the senses and the thoughts and that there's more going on here and that we can uh, give ourselves permission in some way uh, to recognize that uh, there's more than meets uh, our senses. No. So, what are you going to do with that? You know. So, I'm going to just, that's good. I did good. <laughs> so, you know, it's now, I'm going to read my poem again. And, and uh, bodiness, that wind. The wind whistling through the valley. Maybe it could blow the many thoughts and stories and feelings through the hills, scattering them for miles and miles. Yet today, sitting on this sore bum, knees a little creaky, not sure why I would want to inhabit this ignored body. Difficulty, pulling buoyant mind down, down into this skittish body. Staying only a moment, then off again. Staying just a moment, then off again. Prancing around, hoping to think myself out of all these discomforts. Yet remembering this sacred and enchanted place. Asking only to surrender to a body. Steeped in its own natural aliveness. Body inhabiting body. Awareness having this home. Destined to release this worthy heart. Making nothing, making nothing out of all of this. Resting in its totality, body in body. So let's just sit for a moment.
So enjoy this gift you've given yourself. Not so easy, but it does work.